it's undoubtedly true that if a city comes in and says we're going to invest a lot of money in building a broadband network that's better than the one that currently exists, that's going to put pressure on the incumbent uh, to offer better service. Now, the question is whether that overall outcome is better for consumers. Hello, you are listening to episode 185 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. The question of what is best for subscribers is at the heart of technology policy. In this episode, Chris takes up a friendly debate with Ryan Radia, Associate Director of Technology Studies with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. The power of incumbents and their role, the reach of regulation, and how municipal networks fit into the landscape are only a few of the issues Chris and Ryan discuss in this episode. Not only do we need to think about these matters in the context of today, but we need to consider them as technology advances and try to develop intelligent policy that will embrace the future. Now here are Chris and Ryan Radia of the Competitive Enterprise Institute taking up different views and presenting their arguments on technology policy. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today we have a bit of a treat. We're going to have a debate a debate that discusses the viewpoints from both my point of view and my guest, Ryan Radia, the Associate Director of Technology Studies with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, so, Ryan, you've been involved in these technology policy discussions for a while. Uh, we've been on some radio shows together where we have opposing points of view. And I've come to think of you as someone that, um, I, I don't know, I, I think of you as someone who thinks deeply about these issues um, in ways that I appreciate, even though I may not get to the same point you do. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about CEI? Sure. So CEI, the Competitive Enterprise Institute where I work, is a think tank uh, that uh, advocates uh, the public interest as, as we see it, in particular with a focus on uh, free markets, on voluntary institutions, uh, and civil society, uh, with the goal of promoting consumer choice and uh, individual freedom. And so my work there focuses primarily on technology and information policy. When I proposed this show, I, I listed some things in which I thought that we would agree and some things in which I thought we would strongly disagree. And it was interesting to me because in my mind, I think I think so often of the existing incumbents as being uh, one of the main barriers to better consumer choices in the market uh, that I thought we would agree on that. And uh, you pushed back. Um, so I guess let me let me just state my case, which would be um, I think that the incumbents tend to be one of the biggest factors that limit uh, consumer choice because of their overwhelming market power in a variety of ways that I think we can get into in the next few minutes. I disagree with that uh, in part. If you look at the history of broadband in the United States, you do have some clear evidence, I think, that in in certain, especially in certain areas, certain parts of the country where the incumbent uh, telephone company or the incumbent cable company was uh, sluggish or didn't have another second rival, the markets didn't work very well. On the other hand, I think especially more recently, uh, due in part to changes in the structure of the market and due to some technological innovation, not just on the, the wireline side, but on the wireless side, uh, the degree to which I worry about incumbents has uh, has been diminishing to the point where I, I think the things that we, we need to be focused on if we want to make broadband markets work better are uh, more on the limit 
barriers to entry and competition side rather than the uh, limit incumbents, force them to open up their networks, regulate their prices, and so forth. I think I would agree with you. I think for different reasons in the terms of I don't put my energy in terms of encouraging us to open up the, the the networks of the incumbent providers. And I don't, frankly, want to get into a big fight about price regulation because I think it's a ground in which the, the, the public interest, uh, which I, you know, which I think we broadly claim, and I'm sure that, that people uh, such as yourself um, would rightly chafe at the idea that you're not the public interest. But um, I'll, I'll just note that we, we can have a disagreement there. Um, and um, but the the groups that uh, that typically call themselves a public interest, I think, um, I don't think we have a very good chance of winning um, in a price regulation fight, and 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 in the sort of how to open up the the networks. And so my argument with the incumbents is that I'm worried that they have too much ability to engage in predatory pricing. And actually, that's one of the reasons I support municipal networks um, because I feel like the private sector, if you're a, a an entrepreneur who's going into trying to compete with Comcast in a small or a moderately sized city, I think you're going to have just tremendous difficulty trying to to be able to compete because Comcast will just lower their rates artificially, temporarily. They can engage in cross-subsidization um, and, and engage in what we would call predatory pricing, where you're pricing below the cost uh, to run the temporary competition uh, out of the market. And, and I would think that we've seen that example many times with um, – with small private ent- entities that tried to compete. Um, and uh, the reason I think municipals are a little different is I think they are in a position where they can withstand that for extra years in ways that make it harder for predatory pricing to prevent competition. Uh, so I, I'm curious uh, from that angle if you have any um, strong reactions. Well, I I should note that, um, that predatory pricing under certain circumstances where uh, it – is, is intended to foreclose competition uh, where it involves a company with um, monopoly power uh, pricing below cost uh, in a way that uh, that makes it essentially impossible for entry to be economical is is illegal under current law although it's 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 fairly uncommon for um, for the antitrust authorities to successfully bring those cases in part because I think it turns out that um, that predatory pricing isn't as common as it often seems. I, I, of course, to be sure, when, when we've seen companies enter new broadband markets, for instance, when we've seen Google Fiber come into a ha- handful of cities and, and uh, a growing number of cities across America offering generally better uh, throughput at lower prices than existing incumbents. We have seen incumbents often come in and match the, the services that Google's offering. Uh, I'm not sure if in those cases the incumbents are actually losing money. It's a, it's a, it's a tough uh, situation to assess really what the pr- proper metric is because of the way in which the, the costs are, are spread around throughout, um, not uh, throughout a, a regional area, throughout a, a city, uh, and of course uh, the, the cost of acquiring access to other networks, which varies by ISP. Uh, now in, incumbents, for instance, um, some of them have to pay for transit. Others have uh, are, are involved in peering arrangements because of their tra- traditional roles as as, uh, as tier one networks. On the on the on the question of whether municipal broadband networks can come in and check that, it's 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 undoubtedly true that if a city comes in and says we're going to invest a lot of money in building a broadband network that's better than the one that currently exists, that's going to put pressure on the incumbent uh, to offer better service. Now the question is whether 
um, that oh, that overall outcome is better for consumers. It might seem uh, counterintuitive to say that it's not, but I'm just not sure that the the outcome of a city investing a lot of money in a network, uh, which often which may, may involve uh, raising money through through issuing bonds, and then the, the out, and, and end result being a gigabit broadband being available is as beneficial as it might seem. It might even be costly on that simply because. Uh, in many cases, the incumbents tend to offer, especially recently, tend to offer fairly uh, decent broadband packages at fairly modest prices. And now, of course, this varies by incumbent. When you look at a Comcast or a Verizon uh, you, you, or, or a charter, you, you tend to see pretty reasonable uh, prices and services. There are other parts of the country uh, or even neighborhoods where you're limited to older DSL technologies uh, where the cable company is smaller, hasn't invested in upgrading its network, where uh, maybe the boost from a municipal broadband entry can be valuable. Uh, but I just think it's hard to say as a general as general matter that a municipal broadband is an unqualified good. And I think if, if I, th- I think that there are good reasons why uh, voters and and and, and uh, um, city officials should sort of be skeptical before they pursue these networks. Uh, and and, and it, it is a principled matter. I think that there should be a pretty strong presumption that when you have a, a service uh, that looks like a private good in the sense that you can have competition where the people who benefit are the people who pay for it, where you can exclude and so forth on the economic sense of a private good, we should really be looking first and foremost to markets to deliver them because that's that's the model that we seems to have worked throughout uh, the, the rest of the economy. But of course, again, I, I recognize, as you, as you said, that uh, there are there are instances where you can point to an incumbent sort of getting the kick in the pants to deliver better service as a result of municipal broadband. I'm just not sure if that's always an outcome that's on net good. Even if it is good for people who like uh, being able to uh, download Halo 5 in, in a matter of minutes instead of hours uh, or do many other things. I mean, I think that's one example uh, of how people use their, their internet. Um, and, and it's one that, frankly, I think, you know, actually has real-world consequences in terms of property values and things like that. Um, but I also think that when I look at um, the, the the rise of bandwidth caps now, um, I was just shocked to see that my wife and I, who stream almost all of the media that we watch, um, and, and, I, and I'm also a very active internet user, although I do zero torrenting or other sort of file trading that sort of artificially pops up your bandwidth usage. Um, I'm using uh, between 450 and 500 gigabytes uh, per month on my Comcast connection. And when I look at the kind of caps that they're considering, um, there again, I just I, I start to get concerned. Um, and there and there again, I, I sort of start to think about, you know, I've historically we've often looked at speeds and i think you're right that comcast and some other providers although certainly not all have upped their game and and i think that's in response to um, a variety of factors um but i also see some of these things looming on the horizon and i really worry about whether um as a comcast customer who has no other option for high-speed internet um if i'm going to be really seeing my costs grow up suddenly to use the same amount i've been using um currently the bandwidth cap issue is an interesting one. Years ago, when when you know we've been we've been involved in this for a while, people were worried about fifty, uh, seventy five, one hundred gigabyte caps uh, per month, and that in those situations, I was very sympathetic to to skeptics of 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 those caps as 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 being a, a problematic from the standpoint of a, a reasonable internet user. Um, Comcast three hundred gigabyte cap strikes me as as more reasonable if you look at the statistics. 
you know, 90, you know, 95, 98% of their, of their subscribers, depending on which press release you look at or which data you look at, aren't going above that. I, it's my understanding that uh, most HD, for instance, a lot of folks stream HD, as you mentioned, high-definition content over, say, Netflix or Amazon Prime, 5 megabits per second. Um, you're maybe looking at, uh, at that 300 gigabytes getting you, if you just use it to stream high-def, because several hundred hours, you know, maybe often you know, 200 hours, 300 hours of, of streaming. Now, of course, if you have a household with multiple individuals who are all voracious media consumers and are really relying on streaming rather than traditional, uh, traditional you know, um, television, it's, it is conceivable that, that folks will hit that amount. Now, it, it is worth noting, though, that uh, whereas uh, in years past we saw that the, the word cap really mean a cap, you would see... You would see on, on, on DSLreports.com and other forums people getting removed. They, they, their accounts would be terminated if they went over, if they use for, if they use what you're using now in some cases, I think. Now, instead, they're moving toward a model where they're charging extra. And that has gotten a lot of criticism, but I think some of that is misplaced because it, it, it focuses on this idea, for instance, that, that if there's no congestion, uh, there shouldn't be a limit, which I think is, is a misnomer. I don't think that in many, in many cases on the wireline side, the reason why these limits are being instituted is because of congestion, although there may be congestion during peak hours at some point in time. It's more about figuring out a way to address this over this decline in average revenue per user that cord cutting is causing, um, along with the fact that, uh, again, it's not just about speed, it's about usage. It's not clear why why my neighbor who uses uh, a fifth of Trans, uh, transmits a fifth of the data as I do every month should pay the same amount as I do. Well, let me let me actually answer that because I actually think that it's, the answer is because the costs of providing you the service are effectively pretty much the same. I mean, the marginal cost of providing my high usage versus um, uh, my neighbor that uses less is um, is pretty small from, as I understand, the economics of it. I mean, the biggest cost tends to be the capital cost of building the network. And we have so the same right. components. I, I, I agree with that. So I agree that it's not about it's not about the cost. Um, and so the analogy I would use is if you look at buying plane tickets. Now, of course, if you buy near the date of travel, the, the fares will be more expensive. Now, in many cases, that's because there are simply fewer seats. So it is really about scarcity. But if you look at a flight that's, say, half empty, uh, and flights go out half empty all the time in the United States. <laughs> I believe you. It's just never the ones no, I'm it's, on. It's, it's, no, you're right. It's not common. <laughs> By all the time, I mean maybe maybe 5% of flights will go out half empty. Um, it's not, it, it happens, it happens, you know, thousands of times every, every, every week. Um, but, but the point is for the, for the small percentage of flights where the airline knows it's probably going to go out empty because there are occasionally just going to be flights where you, you need to move the plane. You can't, you're not going to be able to fill it up, but you might as well have some passengers. They're still charging those higher prices during closing. And the reason is because they're trying to essentially capture the value from the consumers that demand the service the most in a way that leads to an overall revenue pie that creates a sustainable product. So it, it, to me, it's more that the, the providers are trying to figure out who really cares about the service. We're going to charge them more than we charge the people who care less. The result being, in theory, uh, an increase in overall surplus. Now, of course, you, talk, you ask an economist whether that is, all, is good for consumers, uh, and they'll say it depends. And it really de- gen- genuinely does depend on the specifics of, of – of the situation, uh, so I, I'm not saying that that these these pricing policies can have harmful impacts, but the idea that they're always bad, I think, is also is also wrong. I think there 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 are lots of uh, parts of the economy where uh, where you just don't want pricing to be based on the cost because the marginal cost is just is just so low. I mean, say with same with uh, uh, movie release windows. There's a reason why. Um, 
if you want to rent the movie on demand on at home, you pay a much higher price in, right right after it comes out than you would a year later when it might be on over the air television for free. It's not a cost difference. It's a, it's about figuring out how to capture value in a way that creates an overall sustainable industry. Again, right. that doesn't mean it can't be bad, but it's just not always bad. I want to pivot and uh, and end this show with a little discussion about um, conduit and what we might call passive investments. One of the things that we recently saw was that Tech Freedom came out in support of municipalities building uh, what I believe were called uh, freedom conduits in the um, parlance of the Tech Freedom organization, um, an organization that I tend to have strong disagreements with. But it just so happens that um, you know we've long been very supportive of cities building passive investments. Um, uh, we think that that's a, it can be a smart strategy in some cities. In, in other places, we don't think it goes far enough to address the goals that cities may have. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about your thoughts in terms of cities investing in um, passive uh, infrastructure? This would be like dark fiber or conduits that would be available on uh, accessible terms, reasonable terms to parties that would then themselves provide competition. I think it's a great idea. Um, it's Too often, I think, uh, it, you see governmental entities um, fall into the trap where they're focused just on, on generating revenue. And if the goal is to maximize revenue, maybe an exclusivity deal is, is what you want. But I, I think that uh, the, the way that cities ought to be generating revenue is through uh, broad-based taxation um, and, and, and user fees uh, that, are, that are reasonably commensurate to what the city is providing. So to the extent that cities are, offering, are, are in a position to offer conduits that make it easier and, and, and less expensive for either existing incumbent providers to expand their networks to, to replace copper with fiber or for new networks to be built, even if the, these networks aren't necessarily being deployed citywide, that, that seems to me uh, to be a very positive development, um, especially in the commercial broadband space where, um, where, where you actually see some really robust facilities-based competition in, in, uh, in dense uh, urban business areas uh, in terms of being able to purchase high-end fiber uh, c- uh, connections, not from not just one or two, but several providers that uh, that have, have been able to obtain this access. So I think it's a it's a great it's it's a great way that municipalities can encourage competition um, in in a way that doesn't really cost anything, doesn't really put any ma- uh, major financial risk on taxpayers, but can deliver real results to consumers. To some extent, I feel like I've given up on polls. I feel like poll owners have so much power and the agreements are so um, it's so difficult to unravel and to deal with the different rights of different entities on polls. And plus, polls are just so ugly and, um, and aesthetically, um, I think they present a real um, a loss to uh, society and neighborhoods that have them. I mean, just going through Seattle where they have beautiful sight lines that are constantly marred with, with um, above grade wires. I actually, one of the reasons I really support more conduit and making it accessible in this way is that I think I'd like to live in a future where we have choices in providers and it doesn't require having even uglier uh, aesthetic views above ground. Um, and I'm curious, as someone who looks at a lot of these poll issues and rights of way, um, you know, do you think do you think I'm onto something, or I'm just um, am I confusing um, too many? Uh, am I confusing issues in your minds in terms of giving up on polls? Well, I think t- tactically, uh, yes, they have a lot of power. I also agree that aesthetically, they're not pleasing. I certainly like uh, to see wires uh, underground, and of course, when you're talking about uh, uh, weather-related uh, outages. Uh, not just of, of broadband, uh, but also of electricity. You, you you often see that being less of a problem where 
you don't you don't rely on pools. So there's certainly lots of benefits. I also understand their costs to there 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 are some large insignificant costs uh, to um, to going underground in terms of insulating uh, wires. Although of, of course this can be a bigger problem with copper versus fiber. Uh, so I'm not I'm not sure that um, a pole free future is going to have going to happen in the short term or even that it should happen. But certainly in the long run, I think it's highly unlikely that we're going to see see these poles everywhere in in a hundred years. Uh, I think we'll figure out better ways to do it, and it, it may involve it may involve wireless point to point infrastructure, which I know has sort of taken off in terms of providing backhaul for uh, cell towers, uh, in part because of concerns that you can't get a good enough deal from an incumbent. Uh, so I'm 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 I think that yeah yeah you make a fair point, and and it sounds like. Uh, if we can get away from the poll issue, um, uh, that 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 would be a, a better place for for us to be as as consumers. Well, I think there, there's a lot of other things that I'd like to continue discussing, and um, and depending, you know, if people enjoy this, I really hope they'll reach out and tell us because I'd like to do more of them. Uh, but I think we are going to draw the line there and call that a show. Um, thank you so much, Ryan, uh, for coming on from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Why? Well, thanks again for having me. It's always good to talk to you, Chris. That was Chris talking with Ryan Radia, Associate Director of Technology Studies with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org on Twitter, where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 185 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>